Welcome to the Future Think podcast from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with my colleague, Andrew Maynard, we chat with a variety of experts on and off campus about science, technology, innovation, and policy. This podcast brings you the hallway conversations where we think about our collective future. Today's episode is the third in our five-part series on innovation, society, and the circular economy for the 2016 Disruptive Innovation Festival. Andrew and I talked with Thad Miller about the future of cities and the circular economy. Thad is an assistant professor with us in the School for the Future of Innovation in Society. He's jointly appointed with the Polytechnic School, and he's also a senior sustainability scientist in the Julianne Wrigley Global Institute of Sustainability here at ASU. If you're listening to this podcast between November 16th and November 20th, we would love to have you join in the Disruptive Innovation Festival conversation. You can visit the festival online at thinkdiff.co, that's T-H-I-N-K-D-I-F dot C-O, and locate our podcast events to add your comments. You can also leave us comments on iTunes or SoundCloud anytime, or tweet us at futurethinkpod. As always, if you like what we're doing, please tell your friends, and thank you for listening. Hi, Thad. Hi. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, thank you. Andrew, you're back. Good to be back. Great. So we are talking today about the future of cities and the circular economy. And Thad, you're an expert in the future of cities, so what do we need to know? Um, Well, I think when thinking about the future of cities and the circular economy, Um, It might make sense to start off where we see some of the aspects of the circular economy already emerging in cities. Okay, so tell us what you think about that. Um, So I think one area that we could begin to think about is part of the circular economy is a more service-based approach uh, to goods. Um, So instead of owning your washing machine or owning um, your car, for example, you might share it. And so I think um, with rideshare like Uber, or with other um, uh, other rideshare services like a car to go, you see the beginning of that service economy trying to emerge, and also the beginning of cities trying to grapple with that and make it serve their policy goals in different ways. So, so I'm familiar, obviously, with some of the the, the car sharing systems. Mm-hmm. I'm going back to was it Zipcar and sort of everything mm-hmm. that's gone from there. Um, how much is that broadening out, and how much of this is is purposeful in terms of municipalities? trying to encourage this or and how much of it is just a culture change say with millennials deciding they don't want to drive yeah I think it's I think it's still unfolding and I think it's a mixed bag and so you know a couple, if you look back a couple of years ago when uber and Lyft and those ride shares really started to come online you know Portland Oregon for example where I where I lived before I came here to Arizona State um, they had a ban on uber for about a year mm-hmm. um, saying you know we're not going to let we're not going to let this uh, go move forward right now because we want to figure out how it can enhance and meet uh, the safety of pedestrians and the safety of our population but really also behind the scenes is the taxi union right. Right, trying right. To, to, to figure out that balance yeah um, and so while a lot of aspects of the circular economy especially around the the service aspects of it might seem great, there are these social uh, issues that aren't too many layers below some of the new technologies you might be talking about uh, that have to be worked out. Um, And I I think that's really interesting because the idea is so attractive Mm -hmm. um, that we just circulate um, these raw materials around. 
And yet if we don't think about the, the, the social dimension, including that idea of what we want ownership mm -hmm. over and, and where we want the ability to do what we want to without being constrained, that makes things a lot more complex. Right, right. Um, and so an, another thing that comes to mind is, you know, if you then look, look forward and we'll stick with cars, but you look at, at autonomous vehicles or self-driving cars mm -hmm. that, you know, I think what when, and the, the extent to which that can further underpin a, a more service-oriented approach, that you wouldn't own your vehicle, it would just be able to, to, you'd be able to share them and be able to move around and call it up whenever you want. Mm -hmm. um, but there are some cities, uh, uh, Portland and other cities that are, that are saying, wait a second, we've spent 25 years in trying to get people out of their cars, right. out of their bikes, walking, public <laughs> yeah. transportation, and is this going to you know, have us backpedaling, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so not to say that they want to ban the uh, self-driving cars or autonomous vehicles, but how do you make that work toward your goals that you already set out regarding right. public transportation, right. uh, et cetera? Mm -hmm. Right. So to what extent then, I, just pulling off that, that point, you've got this tension between sort of almost top-down governance, so the municipality or sort of the powers that be trying to dictate what life is like in a city because they have their set of goals and objectives and mm -hmm. ideals. And then you have the, the population, presumably in some cases, pushing back against that because they, they want a little bit of freedom. <laughs> um, sort of, where does that balance lie? And how do you get to that, that happy medium where everybody is going in the same direction, especially if you're looking at transforming how you do things within a city? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a big question. <laughs> right. Um, uh, but I think, you know, if, if I, I, would, I would suspect that, um, that this issue uh, you know, another way to put it would be, you know, how is it, you know, in this case with circular economy or the different technologies that might be associated with it, you know, who has control over it and how does it get integrated into our lives is something that's going to run across a lot of these, right. these podcasts, right? right, right. Um, and, and so I think, you know, that's where, that's where some of my work is, is trying to, to focus on. How can you work with uh, policymakers and planners on autonomous vehicles or issues around resilience and infrastructure and the technologies associated with that. Um, but at the same time, how do you engage communities to, to see how what they want the future of their community to look like and right. how they envision those technologies playing a, playing a role in that. But yeah, I mean, I think that's the sort of, you know, there's no no dis clear answer to that. I yeah. think that's sort of the, and, how and cities work there. And, and I have to ask, yeah. um, at the, <laughs> the risk of totally sidetracking us. So, so, so you spent some time in Portland. Mm -hmm. I, is I, are the people that live in Portland really so different to everybody everywhere else? Uh, in that it is the <laughs> widest city in America, yes. <laughs> so, well, that isn't what yeah. I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yes, in a lot of ways, uh, they are in, in that respect. And I think that's the one of the major issues working itself out now in Portland is that you know, is this vision of a sustainable Portland that's been playing out over the past 25 years and that mm -hmm. a lot of people hope plays out over the next 25, 50 years, is that a widely shared vision, particularly as population continues to change and yep. in all sorts of ways, um, you know, who, who, whose city is that? Right. Mm -hmm. How widely yeah. shared is it? Yeah. Well, and I, I wonder, too, if then you run the risk of um, flight from the cities, right? Because of, you know, like, if you are going to be in the city, the city has prioritized ideas of circularity in the city, and if you want to be linear, then go out to the suburbs, <laughs> right? So, like, 
white flight all over again from Portland. Mm -hmm. Except this time it's the squares and the circles, with the circles staying and the squares finding somewhere else. Right, exactly, exactly. So, I mean, has Portland seen anything like this? Um, You know, there are some colleagues uh, at the School of Urban Studies and Planning, Erin Goodling, Jamal Green, and Nathan McClintock, who wrote a paper on urban geography that looks at this idea to what extent do investments in a sustainable city, public transportation, green infrastructure, et cetera, you know, does that make that part of the city that much more desirable? And then, uh, you know, folks who can't afford that have to have to move out mm-hmm. uh, to place, you know, to parts of Portland that are not as quote unquote sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you see that playing out um, in different ways in many cities. There's been work in, in New York City around investments in green infrastructure mm-hmm. and to what degree has that led to increased property values and result in a process of ecological gentrification. So not just gentrification and displacement because there's more businesses in the community, mm-hmm. but because aesthetically that place is better to be, but it's also protected from flooding or whatever else, and then property values rise and then and then, then the folks right. who are vulnerable in the first place don't even get to take advantage of right. that, that right. better infrastructure. Right. But then property values rising, like if we want to be totally circular, <laughs> we shouldn't care about that, right? I mean... Because you wouldn't own your house. You wouldn't own your house, <laughs> right? Like, but you'd still pay rent. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. But yeah. Okay. Fine. Yeah. So 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 even if you're sort of uh, renting or leasing commodities, um, the, the prices are still going to go up. It's mm-hmm. still going to exclude those that can't actually afford it. Right. And you can imagine, you know, w- with a, a circular economy, and again, focusing on that service aspect of it, whether it's a house or a car or a washing machine, mm-hmm. that okay, fine, but then who has access to the, that, that better service model around that right, technology yes, and then yes. whose is breaking down and mm-hmm. you know, then you get into all sorts of issues of political economy and, you know, and in terms of what are the requirements of, of whoever owns that technology to come and service it and mm-hmm. how that gets played out and who has resources to, to, to fight that battle. Exactly, yeah, it seems like the whole notion of how one would compete according to the uh, you know, sort of money economy, mm-hmm. right? is totally different mm-hmm. in a circular economy that where your articles of competition are service based maybe some technology based you know in terms of the tangible things yes i i mean i wonder how much it does come down to money and, and conventional economics at mm-hmm. the end of the day mm-hmm. because you've still got little bits of green paper um or bitcoins i guess these days exchanging right. hands whether you're actually selling stuff or selling a service yeah yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think, uh, you know, we're sort of getting close to another issue that is already emerging with things like Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, mm-hmm. of discriminatory practices in yes. there that yep. not necessarily on the part of the technology company, but on how different people interface with that. And so, you know, there, if you, you know, there are studies that show if you have an quote-unquote African-American sounding name that they're going to, you know, somebody in Airbnb is going to refuse your reservation request. Right. Right. Or with Uber, if it looks like you're going to a neighborhood that is not desirable or unsafe, then we're, I'm not going to pick up your ride. And so there are different ways around that. So Uber has since then um, doesn't allow the driver to see where they're going until they actually do the pickup. Um, mm-hmm. But still, those are sort of technological fixes to, to a broader you know, social, social problem that is not just sort of washed over just because we have this nice new technology that everybody thinks is, is fancy and from right. Silicon Valley, therefore it's good. Right, exactly. Well, and I think that that idea of this, you know, broader social problem gets me back to this, you know, what happens when a city says, okay, we are intending to operate as part of the circular economy, and so we're going to adopt all of these different practices, and we're going to get away from ownership and go to more service models. 
does that mean then that people, you know, can that be, I guess, an efficient uh, component of a circular economy if people can remove themselves from it? So if you've got a city that says, we are going to operate in this very circular way, and people say, I don't want to be part of this, and people leave. So you've got, you know, if the idea is trying to say that the circular economy is going to help us to preserve the resources, the finite resources that we have on the earth, it seems like the whole system has to do right. it. It can't just be blocks of cities with, that are surrounded by and, and, intense linearity. And, and right. it strikes me that that gets to the heart of the economy bit of the circular mm -hmm. economy, that you've got to have something that's economically attractive, whether you're looking at, at um, a financial or money-based economy or whether it's some other sort of value-based economy. There's got to be something there that is sufficiently attractive for people to buy into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's still, yeah, at the, at the you know, sort of, yeah, it's... it's it's, I think a Marxist would be displeased, right? Because right. you're you're still you're still it is about <laughs> consumption and money. It's just a better version, the that, better, better right. version, quote unquote, right. better version. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, But along these lines, then we have a few levers we can pull. There's offering attractive value. There's the Clay Christensen model of disruption that says that you have to build the whole, you know, economy off to the side and all of the uh, infrastructure and the support structures and all of the sort of support services to sustain a disruptive innovation. Um, but then there are also policy levers that one can mm -hmm. pull to enforce or promote or however one wants to do this. So with your experience mm -hmm. in cities, Thad, what, what are some of those levers that seem to work well to accomplish disruptive change? Yeah. Um, so, so just sticking with Portland, just because it's what I know best sure. at this point. Um, you know, so a few years ago, Portland said, you know, we're going to compost. And not only are we going to our individual households going to compost, but we're going to pick that up every week, but we're only going to pick up your garbage every two weeks mm -hmm. in a smaller can. And yeah. if you want it more, you can pay for it more, but otherwise that's what it's going to be. Uh -huh. And in the first year, they saw a 40% reduction in what went to the landfill. Right? In one, one right. fell swoop. Right. You know? And there was, I mean, that was hugely controversial at the mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. and lots of kinks to be worked out. But I think it, what is interesting in this connection between the circular economy and, um, and cities, I think in years past that cities may not have been at the center of that conversation it would be like, what can we do at the national level? How do you get right. the big multinational corporations involved? And I think that, you know, the conversation will still happen there. But I think what, you know, particularly around issues of sustainability over the past uh, 15 or 20 years, what you've really seen with cities is that, that that's where a lot of the action is. And they actually quite do have quite a few policy levers to really make a difference. And right. so, right. Um, you know, another example is with climate action planning around reducing greenhouse gas emissions in Portland, but elsewhere. I mean, this, is, this sure. happens all over. And I think where the conversation is now is that they have a handle on where, you know, what they need to do in terms of trying to get people out of cars to mm -hmm. reduce those emissions or how to, you know, deal with their own urban operations and the own, their, this, like the city fleet. Um, but now they're thinking, okay, what about what we're importing, what we're exporting, and how does that enter into the, to the conversation? What, to what degree do we have control over that, right? right? right. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it'll be interesting to see where it goes. And so, you know, toward that end, Portland uh, just passed a resolution last spring 
banning the construction of any new fossil fuel infrastructure within city boundaries. And so if you're bringing a train through, you're bringing ships through that are, are transporting fossil fuels, they're not going to be able to build out any new infrastructure to make that happen. Right, so you're uh, getting so, to see them yeah. really flexing their muscles in mm -hmm. terms of having the ability and authority mm -hmm. to do that sort of thing. Um, one of the interesting things that raises is where does that authority come from? To, mm -hmm. to what extent can the leadership of a city act unilaterally and to what extent are they constrained by their citizenship and, mm -hmm. and the people that they're supposedly there to serve? Yeah, yeah, and I th right. I think it depends. I mean, I think some of this will will come down to, you know, local sort of urban cultures or the the sort of right. way that different you know publics and their 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 institutions understand what is possible and what that relationship is. Yeah, yeah. And so that might look very different from what Phoenicians might right. tolerate. Right. You know? Right. Uh, so so th this I find very interesting because certainly from my experience. Um, if you are um, in leadership in a city or a large organization, mm -hmm. there are certain things that you can push through because most people just want to have a comfortable, easy life. They don't want to get caught up in the minutiae of making those decisions. But there's always a break point where you potentially push too mm -hmm. far. Uh, but then there is the responsibility aspect of it as well. So if you do have this freedom to push the boundaries in many different ways without pushback, mm -hmm. um, who is the arbiter of what is appropriate and what is not appropriate? So for instance, you look at the circular economy, a, a fantastic idea, but it is an idea that not everybody will align with. Mm -hmm. To what extent um, do the leaders of a city have the, the authority to push that one idea forward and where does the responsibility lie to think about the consequences of that? Yeah. I mean, especially, uh, so an, another big question, Andrew. Um, I know. So, you know, so I think, I mean, I think cities will probably pretty quickly find the limits of their, their power because, right. you know, as we alluded to before, a lot of this is going to be, you know, where things are produced, how they're produced, which are going to be outside of, of, of urban, urban yeah. boundaries. And mm -hmm. so, um, would that, and there's certain things that, that cities can, can do within that. Um, but then, you know, after that, I, you know, I think you're seeing a lot of mayors or, or, or city representatives in Portland has a different model. The mayor is relatively weak and it's the city council that has more of the power. Okay. Um, but, um, but, you know, so you look at New York with Mayor Bloomberg and all the work they did for uh, around sustainability and then after mm -hmm. Sandy around resilience, cool, yep. you know, mm -hmm. huge, huge pushes on that. You even got an extra term. So like, you know, the difference in terms of what, of a, what a leader can do and what will be tolerated. Um, whereas, you know, it would be interesting to go look at examples of, of, of city leaders who have tried to do stuff around sustainability or resilience and have gotten pushback and then right, got, right, gotten out. I right. just don't know what those, would, what those, what those are. Right. Um, but but I cer certainly a lot of cities would never even try to touch, you know, making everybody compost because of that very reason. Right, so, yes, yeah. yeah. Although, again, and I'm going to sort of flip from where I um, was coming from um, initially, um, you can imagine that in many cases, even though you might think that the people living in your sort of uh, metropolitan boundaries wouldn't like the idea of composting, you can actually imagine that it's going to be easier than you might expect to introduce things like that. Mm -hmm. Simply because people may be a little uncomfortable or sort of um, object to it initially, but they'll very quickly assimilate. And certainly that seems to be something that we've seen elsewhere. Mm -hmm. People grumble, but they just get on with what they're asked to do. Right, right. No, and I think that's right. And I think what you, that's what, 
I mean, for for the for the most part, I think what you saw with with composting in, in Portland, although I haven't looked at it closely, but there was a lot of grumbling in the beginning. Right. Um, sure. But then, sort of, it's then part part of the routine, right? How right. Right. It normalizes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Did Portland see any shift in population? People coming to Portland, leaving mm-hmm. Portland, as a result of just taking that composting example as sort of a yeah. the natural experiment, right? Economists are always looking for the natural experiment. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, not to my knowledge. I mean, Portland's seen a lot of movement over the past, you know, five or ten years, mostly mm-hmm. in you uh-huh. know, uh, pretty big population growth, and then movement within because of that, you know, population growth and desirable place to live, that property values are really rising, and so mm-hmm. um, you don't have just gentrification, but you have a lot of displacement within within Portland, people getting pushed out uh, to, to parts you know, outside of the city core, because right. they can't afford to, to live the in the core. I see. Okay. Well, now it seems like it's a problem with a lot of cities, mm-hmm. is that there are services available in cities, there's a convenience factor to being co-located to other things, and property values do tend to go up mm-hmm. in cities, mm-hmm. pushing people out. So it seems like perhaps yeah. growing uh, services associated with the circular economy might ultimately do a disservice, right, to the notion of the city. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an open question. I think. You know, you could look back at the last, you know, 20 years, but especially the last, you know, 10 years around what urban sustainability has come to mean in U.S. cities and and beyond and how it has come to, you know, reshape policy or reshape urban urban infrastructures in different ways. And I think an immediate critique you could work is like, what have you done around issues of equity and justice, right? Right. Um, It's all been about green building Mm -hmm. and renewable energy and... Um, whatever else, but not really focusing on issues of environmental justice or, you know, or, or, or ha- how new economies, including a circular economy, can benefit those who really yeah. need it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, you, you know, as resilience starts to unfold um, uh, in, in cities now, uh, after, you know, Katrina and Sandy, uh, resilience seems to be the new buzzword, uh, which I think is fine and good, but I think what, you, what you're seeing there a lot is that it's just becoming a you know, excuse for a status quo, let's further protect things and protect investments, but there's no sense of, like, who needs protection, right. who's mm-hmm. vulnerable, why are they vulnerable in the first place, how can they be made more resilient, not just by infrastructure, but um, but through through other means. Um, and so I think if circular economy goes through that, down that same path, it's it's in trouble, because and, mm-hmm. right. there's nothing in that that means that the benefits are going to be more widely spread, or it's going to, going to benefit mm-hmm. people who who are, um, you know, are not part of, part of, the, part of the puzzle. And, and this, to me, seems to be a really important takeaway here, that it's not an either-or. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can't afford just to think of either we've got to adopt the circular economy or we've got to look at social justice. Right. Right. But the two go hand-in-hand hand together. You can't mm-hmm. have one without the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So with that in mind, and I always, whenever we talk about sustainability and we think about the ideas of circular economy, I have this very like Pollyanna moment where I go, oh, but the world is all connected and really we touch Pakistan, right? If like through a few intermediaries, but so with the notion then of of how do we make sure that people who otherwise are subject to incredible inequity how do we bring those people along into 
fitting in to mm-hmm. a circular economy in cities and and in cities like let's take Aleppo um, all of us in this room <laughs> know to, to take what easy, Aleppo yeah. is yes. well no but I think if we really want to push <laughs> yes. right at one end there are people in that city thankfully fewer people because yeah. some have managed to leave mm-hmm. that situation but how can yeah. the circular economy move forward in a way that everybody can be included regardless of their yeah. external circumstances? Yeah. Aleppo being obviously an extreme example. Right, right. But you could come close to home. You look somewhere like Detroit, sure. mm-hmm. which has gone through that, that enormous dip and is now beginning to revitalize. There's a Whole Foods there now. The, well, well so whether this, that's a good thing or a bad thing right, is well, a totally be, different right. conversation. Yeah. Well, yes. this should be part of the, I think this is sort of the conversation, right? So you could imagine, uh, you know, some video on mm-hmm. circular economy that has nice, you know, nice animation and, and, and explains it uh, to you. Uh, you may have seen this video. Um, <laughs> but, you know, who does that appeal to other than people like us around the table or people who shop at Whole Foods right. anyway? Sort of right. preaching to the choir. Right. Um, and, and then show that to somebody else who's struggling through three jobs or yep. right. disenfranchised with the state of our political institutions. Um, and, and what do they see in that video? They see mm-hmm. another Whole Foods and like, who cares? I can't afford that anyway. Right. Right. You know, so how is it that that the circular economy, what it means, who it serves, might look very different. That video might look very different if it's coming from that angle. And we might even look at it and say like, oh, what's this? You know, that's not what I think the circular economy should be. Mm-hmm. But maybe that is, it maybe it needs to be somewhere in between um, uh, that, you know, that it's gonna look different. It won't just be the Whole Foods. It'll be something something different uh-huh. uh, if it's coming from different points of view right, and being right. built for different outcomes. So, so the thing that I find interesting here is you do see examples of where different parts of the community are taking their own initiative mm-hmm. to move towards something which is close to the circular economy. So you look at um, Detroit, for instance, uh-huh. and you look at movements around um, urban farming, right. where you've got local communities working out how they themselves can use the resources around them in a much more efficient way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if we're not careful, we begin to, to miss those opportunities where sometimes um, disadvantaged and marginalized communities are actually doing stuff that we need to be aware of and we need to take lessons from, yeah. Yeah. rather than trying to impose our own very mm-hmm. middle class sometimes ideas onto them. Well, this is one of the things that I think about in terms of uh, new medical device development, because that's what I spend a lot of time thinking about. And we have all of our fancy, you know, shiny, sparkly things that we come up with in North America and in Western Europe. And then there's this whole other class of medical technologies that we say, ah, oh, we're developing this low-cost technology for use in India, for use in Sub-Saharan Africa. And right. I'm thinking, well, it, it should be... You That's know, good. ethically, yes. it should be doing the same job. Right. So why aren't we using the less expensive, yet efficacious technology with, with here. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if that's part of what we should yeah. be foregrounding. Or, right, right. Or, you know, to a, a different dimension of that is, you know, so the circular economy, you just, you know, give your technology in and then it's, re, you know, broken down and remade in some way so that 
So what had been making its way down a chain, not just going to the landfill, there's all, all sorts of interesting studies about how you know, your automobile from 30 years ago is continually retrofitted and still used in sub-Saharan Africa somewhere. Sure. And now with the circular economy, all of a sudden maybe that doesn't happen anymore. Right. And so there's this whole other social and technological chain that's then disrupted, yeah. right? Yeah. That, yeah. that is not really in the formula, for, uh, formal economy necessarily, is not you right. know, in, the, in the U.S. context. Right. Sure. So lessons from Cuba, for example, where right, exactly right. that's happening, Th- that's right? It. Yes. Um, yes. Through necessity. Wicked mm-hmm. expensive to get a new car right. into yes. Cuba. Um, okay, so if we were going to think to the future, as we are all in this room paid to do, <laughs> right? Um, can we make any recommendations? What should what research should we be doing? What kinds of um, uh, development projects or uh, you know uh, demonstration projects should we be doing to promote the circular economy in the context of cities? Um, well, I think one you know that. That, that we talked about today that that I would do immediately is is put you know for lack of a better word sort of an equity lens on it like what might the circular economy mean if you were to take social justice and equity uh, just as important as you are the ecological outcomes which is mm-hmm, you know pretty mm-hmm. pretty pretty upfront in the circular economy but the the social outcomes beyond just that we get to feel better are very unclear um, and how how that how it would affect uh, those issues I think. Um, is one that I would, you know, you know, that would hopefully make it better rather than just wait 10 years down the road and be like, whoops, you know, sure. should have thought of that. Yes. So when city governments say, we're going to do this demonstration project and here are the outcomes we're going to be measuring. Mm-hmm. So those social outcomes yeah. should be right yeah. up there. Mm-hmm. All yeah. right. All right. I think that's an actionable <laughs> step that we can recommend, you know, to the world, something small like that. Yeah. That sounds good. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. For more where that came from, check out the School for the Future of Innovation and Society at sfis.asu.edu. The Future Think podcast is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation and Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at Arizona State University. Our music is by Mark Van Hare. Please subscribe. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud and on Twitter at FutureThinkPod.